Father, we're so thankful that throughout the generations, you have answered that prayer, the prayer of your people that you would come for us. The saints in the Old Testament longed to know when their Messiah would come, and you answered in the birth of your son. And we now, as your people on this side of the cross, we pray the same prayer, that Jesus would come, that he would return, he would make everything right. And this, with the same confidence that your saints in the Old Testament believed, we have confidence that one day our king will come back. And we long for that day. Would you hasten that day? But until that day, would you help us to live lives of worship, faithfulness, and service? May we make the most of these days, of this season. For Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here and to worship with you. Uh, we are continuing in our Advent series that we've titled, Tis the Season. Tis the season. And each week, we're going to answer the question in, our, in God's word, tis the season for what? What is the season for? And how would you answer that question for yourself this Christmas? Like all of us have an ever-growing holiday to-do list. All these things that we have to do, right? After the service is over, we're going to scramble out of here in the sanctuary into the fellowship hall. And so many of you have come with multiple bags of Christmas cards, and your to-do list is to try to lighten that load as much as possible. You're on high alert trying to find everyone on your Christmas card list here at church. There are gifts to purchase. There are get-togethers to plan. There are vacations to take. There are finals to finish. There's food to feast on, deadlines to meet. And the pressure of the Christmas season really reveals what the priorities of the Christmas season are for us. Because we are impacted by what is important to us. And that's not always a bad thing. Right, many of the things that we are burdened by and busy with during this time of year are good things, like relationships and community and generosity, time with family. But it's always a good practice to stop and to evaluate. Are your priorities the same as God's priorities? As we approach this Christmas season, what are the things that, Jesus, that, what are the things that God says this season should be for? And our lives this Christmas needs to be shaped by God's priorities and not our own. So each week in this Advent series, we're going to be looking at different priorities that God has for us as we approach Christmas. Last week, Pastor Kim encouraged us to see that this is the season for giving and for generosity. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how this is the season for loving one another and how we ought to be sharing the gospel. And this week, I want us to consider that this is the season for serving. This is the season for serving. We know that Christmas commemorates that Jesus came. We just sang that, that he came from heaven, that he was born into the world as a man. And if I were to ask you, why did Jesus come? Or how would you answer that? There are a lot of different correct answers to that question. I know for myself, there's been way too many instances, far more, far more than I wish to admit, where I've walked into a room and I've completely forgotten why I was there in the first place. And I'm standing there with this glazed over look in my eye, racking my ever-crowded brain, trying to figure out, why did I come here? What was the point, after all? And thankfully, Jesus doesn't have the same problem. There are so many reasons why Jesus came, but at least one of those reasons, Jesus shares himself in Matthew chapter 20. And this is something that Pastor Ryan read during our call to worship. But Jesus called to them, Called, called, but Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them 
The great men exercise authority over them. He says, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And this is now Jesus explaining why he came. He says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' own mission statement, he says that the reason why he came into this world, why he, why he underwent the incarnation, why Christmas exists, was so that he would serve. And he would serve in the most significant way possible by offering his life as a ransom for many. So Christmas is the season of serving. It commemorates the greatest act of service the universe has ever seen, And so it's fitting that we who bear the true message of Christmas, the hope of the gospel, that we should be those who also carry out our Savior's mission of serving. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, I made this big deal at the end of the sermon about how we don't always need to have an application point when it comes to encountering great truth about God and great truth about the gospel. Sometimes we should just be blown away and awestruck. And the best thing to do when we encounter the glory of God is just to stare at him and be amazed that we have access to him. Sometimes we should be focused less on the question of what do I do and more on who is God and just behold him in his beauty and his splendor. And I was so encouraged with how many of you came to me and told me how freeing that was for you, that you had just permission to be able to just stop and savor the Savior. Well, that's over. There are definitely some things we want you to do as a result of this sermon. We want you to be amazed at the gospel. We want you to be amazed at the glory of Christ. And we hope that because you have seen your Savior, that you will serve your Savior by serving one another. We hope that it translates into all the different ways that you serve, both in the church and informally in the rest of your life. We want every member at Lighthouse, every person here at Lighthouse to consider that to be part of this church family is to be a servant in this church family. There are a number of different ways that we can do this. Um, On your way into the sanctuary this morning, I think a lot of you probably received this beautiful Advent calendar. And what this is, is a way for us to creatively think together as a church, how can we serve one another? So this would be a great practice for your apartment, with your housemates, with your family, to kind of go through these day by day and think, well, how can I serve? How can I be a loving neighbor, a loving friend, a loving church member in this Christmas season? Uh, You probably saw as you were coming into the church today that we have kind of like a middle school science fair deal happening out in the gym. We're holding a ministry fair immediately after the service, so everyone will be able to go out there and just see all the different kinds of ministry opportunities there are at the church, and you can just begin to explore and wonder and dream about what it would be like for you to serve in this church. On your sermon list, there's also a QR code, and if you scan that, it'll take you to our church website. There's an interested in serving form, and if you just check the ministries you're interested in, then a ministry leader will get back to you and you'll be able to find out more information about what it takes to serve in that ministry. But to encourage us to think about how we can serve and what the heart of service really should look like, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at a really familiar passage to a lot of us, but I think it's really going to help us understand our serving. And it's worth mentioning that I'm aware that there are a lot, there's a wide range of people here in the sanctuary, in the gym, who are watching online, There's a wide range of people here in our church when it comes to their relationship to serving. But there are some of you whose serving is so visible. 
and you're just all over the place. You're serving in so many different ministries. It's like you're collecting them like Pokemon, and you just want to get, you want to catch them all. You want to be part of every single ministry here. And then there's some of you who are serving, but your serving is so quiet, and it is secret, and God delights in that because it is done in the mundane, mundane moments in your home. It's done in get-togethers with your friends. It's done as you care for your aging parents. It's done in acts of generosity with your neighbors and your friends. Or some of you are serving nonstop in so many different areas. It's like I show up at any given day at church and it's like, you're here. Why are you here? Don't you have a job? Why are you serving here? And you're serving all over the place. Some of you aren't serving at all. And you're trying to figure out how you can sneak out of here after the service is over, manage to grab a donut, and still avoid eye contact with every one of the ministry tables that are surrounding those donuts. And there's some of you who are in between. There's some of you who are serving, and you love it. You're so energized, and you're so excited by serving. And there are others of you who are serving, and you are honestly in a season of discouragement and disappointment. And my hope is that as we look at this passage in Romans 12, that it's not just going to tell us that we need to serve more, although I do hope that is what it leads us to for many of us, but I hope that it helps us to serve better, that it helps us to have the right heart and motivation and desire and attitude and disposition as we serve in this church. And so let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's holy word. So from this passage, let's look at six marks of our Christian service. Okay, six marks of Christian service. The first mark of how we serve is that it must be gospel-fueled. It's gospel-fueled. This is what Paul is getting at in verse one. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All right, this is a really cheesy, pastoral, hackneyed joke that always comes out whenever you see a therefore, right? And the pastor will always say, whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you have to always ask what the therefore is. Thank you, thank you very much, appreciate that. So I, I, I use this, this joke, if you call it a joke, I use this in Japan when I was preaching there, and I will say it does not translate well. It is, doesn't quite have the same zing to it. But what this is telling us, right, is whenever you see a therefore, you have to wonder what's leading up to that because a therefore is telling you that what is to follow is the natural, logical outflow of something that has been mentioned before, right? It is pointing back to the reason behind Paul's exhortation. And this is important to get, right? Like after service, if I tell you, okay, therefore, you owe me lunch. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. What exactly happened before the therefore that warrants me taking you out to lunch, right? It's pretty important to know what is before the therefore. 
And this is really important because Paul is making a really serious demand of us. He's saying, I appeal, I urge you. And this is going to have some pretty significant consequences because if we serve the Lord, if we serve his church in the way that God intends us to, it's going to cost us. It's going to impact every facet of our lives. So that means then that there had better be a really good therefore. And he shows us that the therefore is infinitely worth it. We find his reasoning in the, for the exhortation in verse one. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? And what does that have to do with you serving in the church? The therefore, the mercies of God, look back to all that Paul has been talking about from Romans chapter one to Romans chapter 11. Roman is often considered Paul's magnum opus. It is a magnificent uh, mag- uh, masterpiece of logic and theological depth and pastoral insight. It is his crowning achievement in the body of scripture and the crown jewel that gleams at the center of that crown is the gospel. The gospel is Paul's therefore. The gospel is the fuel for our Christian service. Romans 1 and 2 introduce the universal problem that all of us face. That mankind stands condemned before a holy God because we have all rebelled against him. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1.25 says. We worship and we serve the creature rather than the creator. We cherish and love the things that God has made more than God himself. And Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is the condition of all of us as we come into the world. We stand condemned in our unrighteousness, but then Paul gives us the first glimpse of this mercy in Romans chapter three, where we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption uh, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That Christ comes to save Christmas happens because of God's mercy. He comes to save not sinners, but not, or not the righteous, but sinners. And he goes to the cross to bear the punishment that we deserve. That's what the word propitiation means. It means the one who absorbs wrath, who takes wrath. And that's what Jesus does for us. The wrath that we deserve, Jesus takes it all on the cross so there's nothing left for us. And we who were guilty, who were ashamed before God, who had no hope, we receive the very righteousness of God. If we repent of our sin and trust in Christ for salvation, then we receive mercy. That God doesn't treat us according to what we deserve. He doesn't look at us and see our sin and unrighteousness, but instead he sees the perfect, obedient righteousness of his son covering us. And we have access to that if we would just believe and accept it by faith. Therefore, Because of that mercy, offer your life in service. Offer your life in service to your God. Serving always must have in his rearview mirror the mercy of God, the miraculous work of the gospel that he has wrought to save you from sin and from yourself. There are a lot of different ways, I think, that having the gospel as our fuel and our motivation, that it helps us have the right perspective in our serving. 
Like one thing that really helps us with is that the gospel frees us from guilt and serving. How often do those two ideas go together for you? Guilt and serving. I feel guilty that I'm not serving. I feel guilty that I'm not a faithful Christian. I feel guilty that other people are looking down on me. I feel guilty because I feel like I should be doing more and I'm not. Or I feel guilty that I am serving, but I feel guilty that I'm about all the other things. And so I feel guilty that I'm feeling guilty. I feel guilty because like, I know there are a lot of other people who are doing all this other stuff and I'm just over here doing this other thing and I'm not meeting other people's expectations and their desires. What if I disappoint people? And the gospel frees you from all of that. Because the only person whose opinion of you matters, your creator, the one who saved you, looks at you and he does not see your deficits. He does not see your unrighteousness as a way of determining his love for you. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And so you don't need to serve out of guilt, but out of gratitude and joy. The gospel also frees you from fear in serving. How often do fear and serving go together for you? You're just freaked out by the idea of serving. Maybe you're already serving, but just the thought of serving next week kind of freaks you out. Every time you go into it, you're just anxious and nervous and not sure if you're gonna be able to muster up enough energy and gifting and whatever is needed for you in order to serve. Maybe you're looking at all these different serving opportunities and the first thought that comes to your mind is that sounds so scary to me because I'm not ready. I'm not mature enough, I'm not gifted enough, I'm not whatever enough. But if you have received mercy from God, then you are called and qualified to serve. This is what God saved you for. Now you may not serve everywhere in every setting, but God is calling you to serve somewhere. You must serve somewhere because this is what God has called you to. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear messing up and not being enough because the gospel forgives us in our mess ups and provides hope when we are not enough. Our small group season for this fall is wrapping up. And what that means is we're already looking ahead to our fall group season in the spring. And we're looking for new small group leaders. And just imagine a situation where your small group leader suggests that you'll be such a blessing as a future small group leader. You should really think about it, really pray about it. And your immediate thought is one of fear. That seems so scary to me, right? What if someone asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? What if I disappoint my small group? What if I see all these other small groups filling up on the opening day of small group sinus and I'm the one that has everybody left, all the spaces left because no one wants to be part of my small group? We are so afraid. But how can the gospel fuel our faith and not our fear? How can we have the gospel cast out our fear where we see that we don't have to worry that God will overcome our weaknesses and even use us, not just despite our weaknesses, but he will use your weakness to glorify him and prove himself to be sufficient, not you. Everything changes when the gospel fuels our service. The second mark of our service is that it must be consuming. It must be consuming. Paul goes on in verse one, and he says that he appeals us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? What is supposed to be the logical outcome of the gospel? What happens when you are impacted by the mercies of God? For our purposes, Paul definitely could have said, you should serve in your local church. And that would be true. But instead he calls us to something far more expansive. He says we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The language of sacrifice would have made a lot of sense to Paul's readers especially those who've been saved out of Judaism. 
The worship of the Old Testament was centered around the act of sacrifice. As a devout Jew, you would bring your animal or your crop and you'd offer it to the priest. And after the animal was slaughtered and prepared, the body was laid upon the sacrificial altar and then it was completely consumed by fire. And if you wanted to worship again at a later time, you would have to do the exact same thing. You'd bring another animal. You would have it slaughtered and prepared. You would have it presented to the priest. You would have it consumed by the fire. This was the life of worship in the Old Testament. It was a life of, worship, of sacrifice. And what does Paul say is life in the New Testament? When we are this side of the cross and members of the new covenant, he says it's the exact same thing. Our lives are still about sacrifice. It is still about worship. It is still about offering a body that will be completely consumed. But here's the difference. You now present your body as the sacrifice. We are now required to lay the entirety of our being on the altar of service to our Lord, and we allow ourselves to be consumed until there is nothing left. And notice that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Right, this is notable because you can only offer an animal once because it only dies once. Like, can you imagine someone trying to scrape up all the ashes and all the charred up bones and bringing it back to the altar, trying to sneak in and say, oh, here's my sacrifice, here's the other one. It'd be ridiculous. The priest would look at them and say, that is unacceptable. You need to keep bringing a new animal, something new. Because an animal can only be sacrificed once. And what Paul is saying is that you are a living sacrifice, which means that you get the privilege of being offered again and again and again and again and again and again. Because of the gospel, we are called to live this all-consuming life of service. I think one really important implication of this is we have to reckon with the fact that there is no area of your life that God does not own. If our service is meant to be consuming, there is no area of your life that God does not own. This is so different from the compartmentalized view that we're all tempted to have when it comes to how we view our service to the Lord. We're so good at dividing ourselves into different areas of life. Right? There's our lives at home with our family. There's our lives at work. There's our free time. There's our time at school. There's our time with our friends. There's our time with our hobbies and our personal enjoyment. There's our time with our church. And we compartmentalize our lives and we're willing to offer some parts of them to the Lord and say, yeah, you can have this, but this part over here, my evenings after work, when I just need a little bit of me time, you can't have that, God. My Sunday mornings when I would just rather sleep in, you can't have that, God. No, we, don't, we need to reckon with the fact that God gets all of who we are. But what are the parts of your life that you just feel like you can't give up? What are the parts of the goat of sacrifice that you're not willing to give over, right? If an Old Testament saint came and said like, oh, you know what? Priest, you can have this thing to offer to the, to the, to the sacrifice, but if you can hold on to a leg for me, that'd be really great. Like what is the equivalent thing for you? What part of your life are you so reticent to be able to give up in service to the Lord? Right, maybe there's an opportunity to serve, but it's just not your preference. It's just not your thing, right? It's too late or it's too early. It's too long or it's too short to be worth your while. It's not an area that you're experienced in. 
or it's an area that you have too much experience in and you're overqualified, you've been doing it for way too long. Whatever it is, would you realize that if service is meant to be all-consuming, there is not a single part of your life that God does not lay claim over. The third mark of our service is that it should be humble. Right, so this kind of all-consuming, gospel-fueled life of service to the Lord comes about, Paul says, by transforming how we think. A miraculous thing happens as we begin to take in God's word and we're fixated on the cross and the gospel. Everything seems to change in our perspective and how we process the world. We actually are able to think God's thoughts after him. This is how he describes it in verse two. That we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect where we actually start to think differently as living sacrifices, and we actually are able to discern what God wants from us. Who doesn't want to know the will of God? And what is it that God wills for you? What is the right thinking, the transformed mind that God wants you to have? He tells you in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, what the gospel should produce in us is a deep humility, that we shouldn't have a big head about ourselves, that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, that we don't have a higher estimation of ourselves than we should, that we're not proud. Christian service should be marked by humility. And I think that if there's anything that will hinder our service, it will be a lack of humility, right? A lack of humility is part of the reason why we're hesitant to serve and why we don't serve, right? A ministry opportunity may come up. Someone makes a ministry announcement about a need in an area of ministry. Maybe somebody even asks you face-to-face to consider something. And maybe you wouldn't say it to their face, but your internal initial thought is like, you, no, ick, that's not me. I would never do something like that. I'm way better than that. I don't understand why you would ask me to consider a menial task like that. And instead, what we, we don't say that out loud. What we say is, oh, you know, I'll pray about it. I think my gifting may be in a different area. But we can be filled with such pride. I think this can be the case for some of us who have been in a particular area of ministry for a long time. We've just been serving for a long time, walking with the Lord for a long time. We developed a sense of seniority. Right, you've been maybe a lighthouse since the beginning for years, and you feel like you've put in your time. I mean, surely, you know, me as a long-standing veteran of this church, I don't have to do this, do I? Let some of the new folks do it. Let some of the young folks do it. It's their time to, to rise up and, and take their ranks. And in fact, I think it's those of us who have served in the church for a long time that are in particular danger of having a proud attitude in our service. Because those of us who have served for a long time run the risk of having our serving field routine. It's just like brushing our teeth. Are you brush your teeth at the same time, the same way, every day? You don't put much thought into it. It's the same thing for us in our serving. We serve the same time, the same way. And before long, we put about as much thought and prayer and earnestness into it as we do putting toothpaste on a toothbrush. And we stop relying upon the Lord for grace and strength. And as much as we say we're serving the Lord, he is really absent from our serving. Our pride may creep into such a degree that we may believe that we're actually doing God a favor with our service. 
and we may never say it this way, but I think a lot of times the thought that can run through our hearts is, man, these guys are so lucky that I showed up today. I don't know what would have happened if I had not been part of this ministry today, if I had not been here to serve. You know what? You're welcome, church. You know what? You're welcome, God. Yeah, I'm, yeah, you're welcome for letting me be here, and I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you're really grateful, God, that I get to be here and make up for all the deficit of all these slackers here. We would never say that, but we feel it. We get impatient and frustrated with the people that we serve with. We judge those who aren't serving as much as we'd like them to, or we judge them because they're not serving in the way that we would want them to. And our hearts are screaming silently inside of us, why can't they be more like me? Why aren't they as generous and gifted and humble as me? God despises this kind of pride. It is antithetical to the gospel of mercy. And I know that this kind of pride lurks in my own heart. We need to be on guard and wary of how this pride creeps into how we serve. Instead, Paul says, we need to be sober-minded. We need to think clearly about who we are and what we are, that we are products of undeserved grace and mercy. We are debtors to grace, and we are here simply by the hand of a sovereign and wise and loving God. We need to be humble in our service. The fourth mark of our service is that we need to be communal. Our service needs to be communal. A long time ago, there was a Sunday when I was scheduled to preach, and it was the day before that Sunday, and I'm at home, and I'm just like looking over my notes and making sure that things are ready for the next day, and I realized at that moment that the worship leader never reached out to me and to kind of talk about the service. Because that's oftentimes what our musicians will do is the musicians will kind of coordinate with the preaching pastor and the service leader to try to figure out, okay, thematically, where is the service going? What are songs that will help support uh, the themes of the service? What's going to be a great, nice liturgical flow that can help us ex exercise and rehearse the gospel together? And so normally we try to have those conversations throughout the week so that the service flows together and works together. And I realized on that Saturday that no one had reached out to me yet. It's like, oh, that's strange. Most of the time, they're usually pretty good about it. But, you know, let's just look up the, the, the worship leader and just see who the deadbeat happens to be that neglected this really important pastoral responsibility. And I looked at the service schedule, and I found out that that deadbeat was me. <laughs> I had been scheduled to lead music on that Sunday. And I was mortified immediately. I'm just like, my heart is racing. I'm trying to imagine how this is going to work. It's like, am I going to do both? Right? So am I just going to be like over here, right? And you just like play something, and amen, closing prayer. And then you walk, do this really slow, awkward walk over to the pulpit. And it's like, I don't know what's going to happen, right? No one wants to see that. And so I, uh, so I called, of all people, Mark Cotto, who was our worship leader today. I think this is God's providence. And this didn't happen yesterday. This is years ago. Um, <laughs> And so I called Marcato and said, dude, would you please bail me out? I need someone to cover me for worship. And he was so gracious, and he did it on short notice, and no one was the wiser. And I was though, at that moment, I was so thankful that God calls us to serve together, that we're called to serve in a community together. I'm so thankful that God has created his church not to operate as a means of highlighting individuals, but to display the body of Christ working together. The church functions in a community with people serving, not in isolation, but for the good of the body of Christ. And Paul uses this illustration of a body in verse four. 
He says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul loves to use um, this illustration of a body to describe the church. It's such a helpful picture, right? Like what is a body? Each of us has only one, right? And yet this one body that we possess, that is this unified whole, it has different members. It has different organs and features and parts that are so different and they all serve different functions. And yet all these differences do not conflict or harm or compete with one another, but they function together in a unified whole for the good of the body. That is what the church is meant to be. It is a living, breathing, communal entity. It is a a unified whole with individual different members who serve for the benefit of the whole body. I think we have a temptation to read these verses and sometimes interpret them very individualistically. Like this is just the stuff that I individually need to do. But it's hard to see here in the English, but all these verbs are plural. Paul does not have in mind individuals here, but the church, the members of the church, that we as the church are to offer our bodies together. We are transformed in the renewal of our minds together. We discern the will of God together because we are the body of Christ together. This, I think, is one of the strongest cases that can be made for actually becoming a member of the church. Not just someone who attends, not just someone who shows up every now and then, but that you would commit yourself to being a covenanted member of the local body of Christ. And if you come periodically and you're kind of just checking things out and you would, if people ask you which church you go to, you would say you go to Lighthouse because it's the one you go to the most. We're so thankful that you would choose to be here and be part of our, our times of worship together. But I want to challenge you to see that God is calling you to something more than just attendance. He's calling you to be part of a body. He's calling you to be part of a local group of believers that you can walk alongside and those that can walk alongside you. The life of service that God is calling us to is meant to be, that we are meant to be enfolded into a bigger life together as part of the church. So our next membership class will happen in early 2024. We really hope that you're gonna be able to be part of the membership and you'll join our church family and be part of this body. But back to our text, I love the specific way that Paul views this connection at the end of the verse. He says, we are individually members one of another. That's a weird way to say it. It's a weird phrase. You'd almost expect him to say that we are members of one body. And that would be true. And it would make sense in this context. But instead he says, we are members one of another. And what he's saying is that you're not just an ear for the church, universally, you know, broadly. You're supposed to be the ear for the individual sitting next to you. You're not just a foot for the church. You're supposed to be a foot for the children in children's ministries. Paul is calling us to be members one of another. He's calling us to be individually connected to one another, intimately connected with one another, that we are doing life and life together, that you, as a member of this church, have a claim on my life, and I have a claim on yours, and that we are mutually obligated to each other's good, that we would pursue Christ wholeheartedly together as members of this church, that we are members of one one of another. I think what this points us to is that we should serve, we will serve people best when we know people best. We will serve people best when we know people best, when we are truly part of their lives. 
For those of you who, for those of you who serve here, when you're serving at Praxis or in children's ministries or bridge ministries, youth ministry, ushering, parking, music, how can you know the people that you are serving? How can you be members one of another with the people that you are serving? How can you get past the job of serving and see the people that God has placed you, has placed you with? Because that's ultimately what serving is meant to accomplish. It is to allow you to be a better brother or sister to your church family. Right? What questions can you ask? How, what bridges can you build into their lives and into their family's lives? How can you take an interest in their life and their circumstances to better know them and to serve them? One challenge I have for you is to consider how you can serve those who are different from you. How can you be members one of another with those that are different from you? Maybe especially those that are in a different season of life than you. We have two ministries that particularly are focused on those who are not married. So we have our um, Praxis, which is our young adult, uh, post-college and career. I don't know how many different adjectives there are associated with that ministry now, but it's Praxis. And then we have Branch, which is for our 30-plus singles. And both Pastor Allen and Pastor France and uh, Pastor Euphemio have said that they really are hoping that there are more people who are just in the next season of life past that would be willing to look at these brothers and sisters who are just in a different season of life and want to walk alongside them, to just let them be part of their family's lives, for, for them to be part of their individual lives, and just be members one of another with them. And so they're looking for people to do that formally by being there during their ministry meetings, and they're looking for people that just do it informally, just getting to know them in the gym afterwards, taking them out to lunch after service, inviting them over to your home. Can you be members one of another with people who are just in a different season of life than you are? So our serving needs to be communal. Fifth, it needs to be strategic. It needs to be strategic. If the church is one body with different members, how are the members different? They differ in their function. And so Paul is now transitioning to discuss the, different, the nature of different spiritual gifts. He says in verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So the topic of spiritual gifts is a huge one, and we're not gonna be able to explore it fully right now. But in summary, these were God-given abilities that God granted to, his, to, believers, to, to his believers to serve the church particularly as the early church was being established before the close of the New Testament canon. But what's interesting is that every discussion of spiritual gifts in Scripture is never really about spiritual gifts. They're only mentioned to help explain how Christians are supposed to serve and love one another. I feel like in a previous generation of you know, Christian education, uh, one really popular thing that just seemed to be a staple in every Sunday school I was ever a part of was spiritual gifts inventories. And I don't know if I've seen a whole lot of them. Maybe they've kind of fallen by the wayside. But the way that these spiritual gifts inventories would work is that you would fill out a questionnaire, right? And they would try to ask you these questions that would help you figure out what your gifts are. So you fill these things out and through some pre-AI algorithm, right, that is on the back of the paper, they'll kind of ask you to have you count some scores. And if you have a score in this area or whatever, then supposedly it gives you a depiction of what your spiritual gifts are, right? And some of the questions are kind of leading, right? So it's like, do you love to share the gospel and, or could you see yourself going to a foreign country and dying for your faith? 
It's like, oh, maybe you have the gift of missions and evangelism and martyrdom, right? You know, so it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be super honest with that particular, you know, one. But there, and there were some that, you know, some gifts that we really wanted to have. Like, dude, wouldn't it be cool if we had the gift of prophecy? It's like, oh, stewardship, well, administration, not again, right? And so there were some that always felt to be maybe ones that we weren't all that excited to get. And sometimes you look at this list of gifts that's supposed to give you and you kind of feel like, that's it? That's all I got? Does that mean I have to stay in this lane forever? Can I take classes to get spiritual gifts in some other area? Do I have to pay some extra money to level up in some other spiritual gifts? And we kind of miss the whole point. That the whole point of that exercise, as helpful or unhelpful as it may have been, the whole point of thinking about your spiritual gifts is not to come up with some definitive list of the gifts that you have and the gifts that you don't have. It's for you to take stock of everything that you are in life, all the different ways that God has built you, all your gifts, time and talents and resources and abilities, the personality, the way that God has wired you, and to use everything that God has given to you to bless and to serve others. Paul lists seven gifts here. And it's not an exhaustive list. These are just examples of gifts, but he breaks them up into two broad sections. And this first group, including the first four, the emphasis seems to be on strategically using the gifts that God has given to you. Right? He says prophecy in proportion to our faith. He's emphasizing that God has given this to you. But he says with service, teaching, exhortation, there's this pattern. If you have the gift of blank, then blank. If you have the gift of serving, then serve. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of exhortation, then exhort. In other words, if God has given you a gift, then use that gift. Be strategic in all the different ways that God has wired you. My mom is a nutritionist, which meant that for most of my childhood, all the food I ate was super healthy. And it changed a lot when it came to Lighthouse. <laughs> but everything was non-fat, reduced fat, low sodium, low taste. <laughs> but every now and then, a Christmas miracle would happen. And I would be at a relative's house, a special event, one of those school fundraisers, and I would get a chocolate bar. And like manna from heaven, I felt as if God himself had reached down from above and handed me a gold bullion. It was just like this precious thing that was so rare for me. And so what I would do, I would take this treasure and I would take it home and I would open up my desk drawer and I would tuck it away. And I would want to save it for the right occasion. And I would save it and save it, and save it. And I would wait, and I would wait, and I would wait, until finally I'd open the drawer and say, no, today's not the day. This is not the day for this, and I would close the drawer, and I would wait, and I would wait, and I would wait, and I would save it, and I would save it, and I would save it, and finally, sometimes years later, I would open up the drawer, pull out my precious candy bar, only to find that it had completely gone bad. And it was rancid and wasted, and this treasure that I had had been absolutely obliterated. I had been given this treasure that was meant to be consumed and enjoyed, and instead I squandered it by hiding it away and not using it for what it was intended to do. A candy bar's sole existence is, is to be put into your mouth to be enjoyed, and I wasted the opportunity. God has given each of you gifts, skills, talents, abilities, resources, personalities, just the stuff about your life. And so often, we squander it by hiding it in the desk drawer and waiting it for the rot. When instead, we should be taking it out and using it, not for our own enjoyment, for the enjoyment and blessing of our church family. I think one way that we can think about the ways that God has gifted us is to think about it in three categories. You think about your talents, 
your treasures, and your time. By talents, I mean just your abilities, the stuff that you would say that you're good at, these are your skills, your, your proficiencies, even your personality, just the way that God has wired you. Right? Some of you are just great with kids. Some of you are incredibly musical. Some of you, your gift is you're just super organized. Some of you are great communicators. Some of you are great listeners. Some of you are great students of God's word and theology. Some of you are so gifted to being able to take a complicated idea and break it down and communicate it clearly to other people. Some of you are so gifted in cooking. Some of you are gifted just because you're nice. You're just a nice person. You would never think of that being a gift. Who made you that way? There's a gift from God. And there's so many examples of people here in this church that take the specific talents that they have been given and use them to leverage them to serve the church and magnify Christ. I think one of my favorite areas I've seen this work out in is disability ministry in our bridge ministry. Uh, I think as Pastor Kelly would say, you can't swing a dead cat at a lighthouse without hitting somebody that's from a medical background. You know, there's so many of you that have specific specialized training in this, like OTs and speech therapists and physical therapists, behavior therapists, special ed teachers, just teachers in general, really nice people. But so many of you are so gifted in this area. We, are, we have like an army of people that are so gifted in serving disability population. And so many of you have leveraged those abilities for God's glory and for the good of our church. I'm so thankful for you using your gifts in that way. Our women's ministry shared with us that they're looking for ladies who can use their gifts to help with their upcoming events, right? They need help with making snacks, setting up and cleaning up, decorating, photography, running AV during their events. What about missions? Have you ever thought about the way God has wired you for missions? Next summer, we're going to be sending a team to Japan to help support a VBS program that we're doing with our church plant in Japan. I mean, have you, are you fluent in Japanese? Like, do you have a heart for that nation? Are you considering career missions, long-term missions in maybe one of the most unreached places in the world? Would that be a stewardship of an ability, a talent? We also need to think about not just our talents, but our treasures. By this, I mean the stuff you actually own. What do you do with your stuff? And are you using that to serve? Your car, your house, your apartment, your, your dorm room, your camera, your craft supplies, your computer, your tools. Last week, <clears throat> Pastor Kim shared about how we need to be faithful in evaluating our use of our finances. This is one of the biggest part of our treasures. And I don't know what your financial situation is now, but whatever it is, it's a gift. And God is calling you to use your finances as a way to serve others. Right? Imagine what your financial giving would look like if you were fueled by the gospel, if your life was an all-consuming sacrifice, if you were humble, if you were strategically using all of your life, what would that mean for your financial generosity? How can you use however much you have or however little you have to love and to serve others? Right? Something as simple as taking someone out for a meal, giving a thoughtful gifts, providing for an outing for a family, making a generous contribution to the church or to another organization that ministers the gospel. And finally, time is the last gift that we need to use strategically. Your time is one of the most important gifts that you have. How can you use your time to be a blessing to others? And you may not feel like you have a lot of talent. You may not feel like you have a lot of treasure. But all of us have been given the exact same amount of time. Every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every year. And I know that none of us feel like we have an abundance of extra time in our lives. 
But here I want to offer an encouragement particularly to those who are single. So for our youth and for our college students and for Praxis and Branch and beyond, I know it may not feel like it. I know it may not feel like it and you don't believe me, but God has gifted you with an abundance of time in this season of your life. This is really hard to believe, but you are right now in the most flexible season of your life that you will ever be in. I know life feels busy with finals. I know life feels busy with school. I know life feels busy with work, but believe me when I tell you that as life goes on, there will just be more complexities, more constraints that come your way. The time you have now in this stage of singleness is a gift. How will you use it for God's glory? How can you use it to invest in God's people, in God's church, for God's gospel? Okay, the last mark of Christian service is that it must be sincere. It must be sincere. So with the final grouping of gifts, Paul changes how he describes them. He starts emphasizing not just what the gifts are, but the attitude we're supposed to have when we use them. That we're supposed to display a genuine sincerity and excitement. Look at verse eight. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul is saying, don't just give. Give generously. Don't just lead a ministry. Do it with zeal and with passion. Don't just be merciful to people, but have a wonderful, good attitude about it. Do it joyfully. And I think of so many people here at this church, in this room, that live this out daily. Right? You're not just hired guns fulfilling a job at church. You are the happiest people I know because you're using all that God has made you to be in the gospel to love God and love his people. The reason why you experience this kind of sincerity in your serving is because of everything that Paul has described leading up to this. The mercy of God is real to you. You're expending yourself for the others the way that God has created you to. You're humbling yourself before God and before others. You're connected intimately to church community. You recognize your gifts and you're stewarding them and you're giving them away for the benefit of the church. And it's no wonder that your joy in serving is so palpable and you are such a blessing to me and this body. But I think that there's always going to be the sinking feeling that maybe one day it won't feel like that. And after months and months and years and years of serving, what happens if you lose that sincerity? That you'll give, but you won't give generously. You'll lead, but you won't do it with passion. You'll show mercy, but be reluctant and resentful. And you just fall into the routine of doing the same thing every Sunday, every week. And what was meant to be a, a delight has instead become a duty. Now, there are a lot of ways to evaluate why we might feel that way, why we may not feel generous or zealous or cheerful in our service. And for some of us, our first instinct is to think, well, if I don't feel like it, then I probably just shouldn't do it. If I don't feel generous, if I don't feel zealous or cheerful or sincere, then I just probably shouldn't do it. And for some, stepping back and, and reconsidering your commitments with, for a season, that might be wise. It's worth considering whether or not we're being wise with limited time and resources, whether or not we're stewarding our gifts well, or whether we are stretching ourselves too thin, whether we're balancing the vast scope of stewardship in our lives. Our Sabbath and rest are woven into creation, and it would be the height of pride and hubris to think that we need neither of those things. But I also think that we have to consider everything else that Paul has talked about, but why, why we serve. If we are not truly experiencing the mercies of God, 
if we're not letting his word transform our thinking, if we're growing proud and self-reliant and we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, if we're not connected to our church community, if we're not thinking strategically about the ways that God has gifted us and wired us, then it shouldn't surprise us that we feel burnt out and miserable. So it may be the case that you have to evaluate the quantity and intensity of what you're doing. Of course, that's wise and prudent. But the harder and sometimes more important path is to examine the inner workings of our hearts to see if our lack of joy and our lack of sincerity has more to do with what's going on inside of us instead of what's outside of us. I've had way more moments of that than I'd like to admit. Moments where I knew the right thing to do and I just felt joyless in doing it. This is true at home, in ministry, in friendships, in relationships, in family. In those moments, I'm tempted to want to escape. I want to pull back and I want to blame others for the difficulty of my experience. I want to avoid pain and discomfort and inconvenience. But in the end, the thing that always stands before me, between me and joy in serving, is my sinful heart. I'm ultimately the reason why I'm not experiencing joy in serving. Because if my heart is not fixed on Christ, if I'm not overwhelmed by his love for me, if my heart is not is swollen with pride and entitlement and selfishness, then of course serving will be painful. But it's when I can clearly see the ways that my Savior has served me. He sacrificed for me at great cost. When I see how little I deserve and how little I am, when I'm overwhelmed by the fact that nothing I have is what I deserve, when I'm aware that every relationship I have with each of you as a church member is a deluge of grace that is beyond my deserving, that I get to work alongside and minister with people who have modeled Christ's generous, humble service, it is then and only then the serving is not unbearable, but inevitable. It is not a chore, but a cheerful delight. I pray that this will be the way the lighthouse serves that we will be fueled by the gospel, that we will be all-consuming in offering our bodies as living sacrifices, that we will be humble in not considering ourselves more highly than we ought to think, that we would embrace our different roles as members of the body of Christ and serve strategically, and that we will be sincere with hearts of worship as we serve. And may this season, may this Christmas season and all seasons to come be a season of serving. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the mercy of the gospel that frees us from our bondage to sin and, and Satan and ourselves. And instead, it frees us to take up your yoke, which is easy and light. And we thank you that part of that is the privilege and joy of serving one another. I pray, Father, that as we serve in formal and informal ways, that would magnify not our worth or our goodness, but your worth and your greatness. God, would you allow us to serve out of the gospel for the gospel, because of the gospel? And would you use this kaleidoscope of gifts, this diverse body of believers to, to shine light into this dark world, that we may bring the grace of the gospel deeper into each other's lives and into our world that so desperately needs it. God, we love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.